the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Got quite a lineup today. We're going to talk with Christy Fries. She's Vice President for Events and Experience Marketing with Wycliffe Bible Translators USA. Now, we're not going to talk about Bible translation. We're going to talk about resources that they have uh, made available to families who are looking for activities for the kids. Uh, they, In addition to the details of whatever the scavenger hunt or the activity might be, they also give you an indication of the time uh, from as little as 10 minutes to complete a project to a month. So if you're looking for activities uh, for the family... We'll talk about that with her at the bottom of this hour. At the top of the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Robert Hutchinson. He's the author of What Really Happened, The Lincoln Assassination. Now, you and I might think we know what happened. I mean, what mystery is there left? We'll talk with him about that when he joins us at the top of the 5 o'clock hour. We'll also talk with Larry Gadbaugh. In a separate conversation, he's chief executive officer for First Image and the Pregnancy Resource Centers for the Portland metro area. Steps for Life typically takes place in May. Just like everything else, they're doing something a little different. And we'll talk with him about that when he joins us in the five o'clock hour. First, taking a look at some of the day's news, numerous university of Delaware officials are refusing to release Joe Biden's Senate records despite an earlier promise. They have close personal and financial ties to the former vice president, according to records that have recently been revealed. One of them, the university's board chairman, even though uh, even bought Biden's house in 96 for a reportedly top dollar price. Uh, the document suggests a significant conflict of interest as Biden faces increasing pressure to relinquish the documents that could contain information relevant to former aide Tara Reid's sexual assault allegation against him. In 2012, Biden dropped off 1,875 boxes of photographs and documents, videotapes and files, and 415 gigabytes of electronic records to the university. The university initially said it expected to make the records available to the public two years after Biden's last day in elected public office. Well, in April of 2019, just hours before he announced his current presidential bid, the university changed its mind and said the papers wouldn't be released until either the 31st of December 2019 or until two years after Biden retires from public life. Hmm. Well, California Governor Gavin Newsom will be closing all beaches and state parks across the state starting tomorrow to help slow the spread of the coronavirus, according to a memo sent to a California police chief on Wednesday. The decision comes less than a week after Newsom called out the massive crowds that flocked to Newport Beach in Orange County, Orange County rather, last weekend during the heat wave. He called the beach crowds an example of what not to do for the state to make progress toward easing restrictions in the statewide stay-at-home order. Many beaches across the state have been closed, but some such as the Ventura and Orange County uh, beaches were open and started to get more visitors as the weather got warmer. Can you imagine the weather being that warm 
at this time here. Well, the explosive new internal FBI documents unsealed yesterday show that top bureau officials discussed their motivations for interviewing then-National Security Advisor Michael Flynn in the White House on the, the, in January rather of 2017 and openly questioning if their goal was to get him to lie so we can prosecute him or get him fired. The handwritten notes written by the FBI's former head of counterintelligence, Bill Prystep, uh, after a meeting with then-FBI Director James Comey and then-FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe, uh, is uh, said further, they, they suggested that agents planned the alternative to get Flynn to admit to breaking the Logan Act when he spoke to then-Russian Ambassador Sergei Kislyov during the presidential transition period. Well, the Logan Act is an obscure statute that has never been used in a criminal prosecution. Enacted in 1799 in an era before telephones, it was intended to prevent individuals from falsely claiming to represent the United States government abroad. In an interview on Hannity on Wednesday, Sidney Powell, Glenn's lead attorney, said, it's just absolutely appalling that these agents and then special counsel operatives did to General Flynn. It's abuse of their authority at every turn. This is a developing and unsettled story. In other news, the FDA is considering a quick green light to a drug helping COVID-19 patients. So federal health regulators are exploring whether to green light the emergency use of Gilead Sciences, Inc. Gild 5.68% drug in serious COVID-19 patients after U.S. government researchers reported the therapy helped the patients recover faster. Dr. Fauci says what it uh, has proven is that a drug can block this virus. Well, more good news uh, from another story. The pharmaceutical giant Pfizer said on Tuesday that a new coronavirus vaccine could be tested as early as next week with a potential for emergency use by the fall. And meanwhile, the New York Times is putting names, faces and stories to many of those who have died because they are all distinct individuals important to their respective communities. And a progressive podcaster is blasting the media for ignoring the former vice president's accuser. In a lengthy Twitter thread, Halper, who first spoke with Reed on her podcast, The Katie Halper Show, on the 25th of March, responded to a tweet made by New York Times media columnist Ben Smith, who pointed out how remarkable it was that CNN or MSNBC had not booked Reed for a televised interview. Thank you for pointing this out, Halper said. The legacy media's uh, lack of delay in and then ultimately uh, their biased reporting on Tara Reid is precisely why she, a progressive Democrat who, as uh, she told me, is diametrically opposed to Trump's policies, is covered uh, more by Fox and The Daily Caller than by CNN and MSNBC. Guy Benson remarks as well, media has spotted him five weeks to figure out how to address this, not asking a single question about it over the course of many interviews since the allegation went public. Contemporaneous evidence has mounted, quickly overtaking old, weak talking points. Surrogates are still peddling. And California Republicans are suing the governor to stop ballot harvesting. The California Republican Party is suing Governor Gavin Newsom to prohibit the practice of ballot collecting or ballot harvesting during two upcoming special elections in the state, arguing it stands in direct conflict with social distancing guidelines and Newsom's shelter-in-place mandate to slow the spread of coronavirus. 
Pete Peterson says ballot harvesting was a partisan hack of the CA, the California Elections Code. These kinds of changes to our election administration should be openly debated and agreed to in a bipartisan way. California is a sad joke for continuing this corrupt practice. Democrats are increasingly pushing for all voting to be done by mail. And due to the pandemic, all the teenagers uh, need to get a license is permission from their parents as the state of Georgia is dropping the driving test for licenses. Maybe we should all shelter in place in Georgia. You've got kids driving who've never taken the test and mothers who teach homeschooling suddenly or or a particular mothers uh, who have uh, taught their kids in homeschooling are very popular as they saw uh, attention to their sites boom overnight. And Florida is delivering robotic dogs to keep elderly company. They believe fake dogs will make them happy. I guess that depends on how fake the fake dogs are. Well, on this day in history, 1789, George Washington is inaugurated as the first president of the United States. 1798, the U.S. Department of the Navy forms. 1803, Chancellor Robert Livingston and James Monroe signed the Louisiana Purchase Treaty in Paris at a cost of $15 million. 1859, Charles Dickens, A Tale of Two Cities, is first published in the literary periodical All Year Round. 1885, the Boston Pops Orchestra forms. 1885, 1900, the Hawaiian Organic Act is enacted by Congress, making Hawaii a U.S. territory. And in 1904, the Ice Cream Cone makes its debut. Can we just pause for a moment and reflect on that? The Ice Cream Cone makes its debut on this day, 1904. 1939, the New York World's Fair opens. And in 1939, Lou Gehrig sets the Major League Baseball record playing his 2,130th consecutive and final game for the New York Yankees. 1945, Adolf Hitler commits suicide, along with his new wife, Eva Braun, in the Fuhrer bunker in Berlin as the Red Army captures the city. 1952, on this very day, Mr. Potato Head is the first toy advertised on television. 1972, Uh, Arthur Godfrey time ends a 27-year radio run. And finally, 1989, on this very day in history, the World Wide Web is first launched in the public domain by European Organization for Nuclear Research, or CERN, scientist Tim Berners-Lee. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later this hour, we're going to talk with Christy Fries. She is the Vice President for Events and Experience Marketing with Wycliffe Bible Translators. And we're going to talk about a resource they're making available to you and your family to help keep the kids occupied in meaningful ways. So stick around for details on how you can avail yourself of this great resource. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the office of the director of the National Intelligence uh, confirmed on record for the first time on Thursday that the U.S. intelligence community is, in fact, investigating whether the coronavirus outbreak started as the result of an accident at a laboratory in Wuhan, China. Well, China's mishandling of the outbreak, complete with widespread allegations of cover-ups and flat-out lies, has damaged its credibility and standing on the global stage and could hit the country much harder than expected as nations around the world begin to restart their economies. The FDA says that it's working on as quickly as possible to make the coronavirus treatment remdesivir 
available to COVID-19 patients, a spokesman is uh, saying. The drug, which could shorten the recovery time of COVID-19 patients, is likely to receive emergency approval from the FDA, according to the New York Times. The um, antiviral, which is developed by Gilead Sciences, was previously used uh, to treat Ebola patients. Meanwhile, British researchers who are currently conducting human trials of a potential coronavirus vaccine will know if it's effective by this summer, possibly as early as June, according to the chief executive of AstraZeneca, the pharmaceutical company that's working alongside Oxford University scientists in its development. Still, the news was bleak on Wall Street. More than 3.8 million Americans filed for unemployment last week, the Labor Department reported today, as the tidal wave of job losses triggered by the coronavirus pandemic continues to grow. The new report, which covers the week ending April 25th, pushes the six-week total of job losses since states adopted strict stay-at-home measures to 30.2 million. And for those uh, more than 30 million Americans who find themselves unexpectedly unemployed due to the coronavirus pandemic or the hundreds of thousands silently grieving the loss of a loved one in isolation, expect to see a transient increase in the number of people reaching out for mental health help, one expert says. And President Trump today took aim at Sweden's decision to not order lockdowns in response to the coronavirus pandemic, insisting the U.S. made the correct decision with its shutdown strategy. The president's comments came after the World Health Organization praised the Scandinavian country's more moderate approach. And protesters gathered for a rally against the extension of Michigan's strict anti-coronavirus measures uh, this morning, even after Facebook deleted two separate event postings for the rally, with demonstrators railing against Governor Gretchen Whitmer's actions to fight the coronavirus as state lawmakers weighed whether to extend an emergency declaration. And the USNS Comfort military ship is leaving New York City and returning to Norfolk, Virginia, after treating only 182 patients. The territory surrounding Australia's capital city of Canberra has become the first of the country's eight states and territories to declare itself free of all known coronavirus cases. Congratulations to them. And the Transportation Secretary, or rather Security Administration, or TSA, has announced that the novel coronavirus has infected 500 federal employees to date. While 208 employees have recovered from COVID-19, the viral disease has tragically claimed the lives of five others. And more than 70 percent of federal prisoners examined for the coronavirus nationwide have tested positive. Remember that population in your prayers. Well, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence confirmed on record for the first time that the U.S. intelligence community is investigating uh, the origin of the coronavirus outbreak. That's the word I'm searching for. Well, the entire intelligence community has been consistently providing critical support to U.S. policymakers and those responding to COVID-19, which originated in China. The intelligence community also concurs with a wide scientific consensus. Uh, As we do in all crises, the community's experts respond by surging resources and producing critical intelligence on issues vital to U.S. national security. Richard Grinnell said, the director of national intelligence, the IC will continue to rigorously examine emerging information and intelligence to determine whether the outbreak began through contact with infected animals or if it was the result of an accident at a laboratory in Wuhan. 
A Canadian city is asking family members this week to stop visiting the windows of loved ones at long-term care homes during the coronavirus pandemic. Really? Well, windows, window visits at nursing homes famously captured amid the outbreak are typically the only way residents can see their elderly family members and vice versa in person due to strict social distancing measures in order to protect their health. Well, the director of the long-term care in Ottawa said he made the request for no window visits at city-run homes in order to help ensure that physical distancing remains in place for all our residents. Now, I'm not sure how visiting someone who is on the other side of glass would somehow violate their physical distancing uh, rules. But he goes on to say that with the effects that we have seen the virus have on long-term care homes across the country, we have a responsibility to do everything possible to minimize the risks of COVID-19 entering homes and to protect the safety of residents and staff. Uh, He says the uh, city has seen a number of occasions where families have visited homes and not respected the requirement for physical distancing as directed through public health agencies. He said Ottawa has uh, uh, deployed additional staff and increased access to certain uh, technology to help residents stay in touch with their loved ones. The city has seen COVID-19 outbreaks in two long-term care homes. So I think it's a little bit muddled as to what they're actually um, trying to combat. Uh, visits through the glass may have devolved into visits that are face-to-face somehow at the facility. But in order to prevent families from coming to those facilities, they're now saying, we don't even want you to visit through the glass. We'll make technology available to help you see your loved one in other ways. But apparently, people have not uh, observed the kind of distance that is sadly currently necessary. Well, how close is the U.S. to herd immunity for COVID-19? We're hearing a lot about this uh, notion of herd immunity and the role it will play in getting back to some semblance of normalcy. There's been considerable uh, interest lately in Sweden's response to COVID-19. According to Sweden's top epidemiologist, uh, Sweden is expected to achieve herd immunity in several weeks' time. Sweden pursued a more more, uh, relaxed uh, mitigation strategy practicing social distancing, rather, while avoiding a national lockdown, and approximately 20% of uh, Swedes may have been infected and may now be immune to the virus. So it's been a different approach and presumably different outcome as a consequence, as I turn the volume down on my uh, computer. Herd immunity is the point at which a large enough percentage of the population is immune to the disease that new cases are not likely to spread to others. In other words, it's when there's there are enough people who are immune to the disease that the disease nowhere has nowhere to go and eventually dies off. Therefore, every person who's been infected and recovered or infected and remained asymptomatic will help contribute to herd immunity. But how close are we here in the United States to achieving that goal? Although several studies are suggesting that there are far more people with antibodies to the virus than we know, it's not clear that we're very close. After all, we are a much larger country. As earlier study uh, of pregnant women found that 29 out of 33 women who tested positive for SARS-CoV-2, which is COVID-19, were asymptomatic at the time of the test, and 26 of them never developed any systems uh, or symptoms at all. Uh, that finding suggests that for every pregnant woman with symptomatic COVID-19, there were seven who were infected with the virus but never developed the disease. That also suggests that for every woman with symptomatic COVID-19, there may be up to four other women who are infected but don't have symptoms either. Well, the study is difficult to generate 
because the sample was small and because the study took place in New York City, where incidents of expected uh, to be very high. Furthermore, women seem to be less susceptible to COVID-19 disease than men, which would uh, cause the number to overestimate the asymptomatic prevalence of COVID-19 uh, broadly. Well, to get a better idea, the state of New York has been conducting antibody tests and announcing preliminary uh, studies or results rather on the 23rd, which found that 13.9% of New York residents had the virus and recovered whether or not they were ever tested. If those numbers bear out, approximately 2.6 million people have been infected in the state, including 1.7 million people in New York City. As of uh, now, the state's health department is reporting that it has um, had 28 or rather 288,045 positive test results. The initial tests uh, focused on symptomatic patients. Um, so the majority of the positive cases reported by the health department likely indicate asymptomatic uh, cases of COVID-19. So we uh, will eventually reach presumably um, that kind of uh, herd immunity, but apparently we are not there yet, not close to there yet. And if New York is the uh, the sample that gives us an indication, it's going to take a little more time. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back in just a few moments. So do please stay with us. Also, we'll talk with Christy Fries with uh, Wycliffe Bible Translators USA with resources for families to get through this pandemic with some great activities. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're looking forward to my conversation with a representative of Wycliffe Bible Translators USA with some great activities for families if you're running out of steam and finding ways to occupy the young people in your household. So that's coming up in our next segment. Well, the American economy is shriveling at an alarming rate and the biggest and fastest collapse since the Great Depression. The coronavirus has killed some 60,000 in the U.S., led to lockdowns and other restrictions that have closed factories and other businesses around the country. But how might the coronavirus affect future American jobs? For now, tens of millions of U.S. businesses and uh, laid off or furloughed workers are hoping for a swift and solid economic rebound. With shutdowns, the U.S. said its gross domestic product or output of goods and services shrank at an annual rate of 4.8 percent in January to March, the sharpest quarterly drop since the global meltdown of more than a decade ago. But of course, from April onward, That's going to be even sharper. And the worst is yet to come. The Congressional Budget Office has estimated that the GDP of the world's biggest economy will plunge at a 40 percent annual rate during the three month period that ends in June. That would be by uh, a breathtaking margin, the bleakest quarter since such records were first compiled way back in 1947. It would be four times the size of the worst quarterly contraction on record set in 1958. Well, the GDP report showed that the weakness was led by plummeting consumer spending, which accounts for 70 percent of economic activity. Consumer spending tumbled at an annual rate of 7.6 percent in the first quarter, its steepest decline since 1980. Business investment sank 8.6 percent. Investment in equipment um, uh, falling 15.2 percent. Well, as companies begin to reopen, they're going to uh, be on in the survival mode. That means that multiple layers of expense reduction initiatives, which will, of course, include cutting uh, their employee headcount, when the incentives and stimulus programs dry up, what will demand side look like? 
Uh, With these companies right-sizing their payroll expenses to align with their new post-pandemic demand levels, along with the reduction of full-time employees, we expect that non-W-2 workers, um, uh, freelancers, and consultants will play a larger role in the economy. That's one of the things that's being predicted of the post-coronavirus job market. Um, The latest figures on people applying for unemployment benefits in the U.S. are set to be released, with economists estimating that one in six American workers, or about 30 million people, have lost their jobs over the next uh, or over the past six weeks. So what does recovery look like? Well, it all depends on how fast demand ramps back in uh, with each company's industry. We can expect unemployment to rise significantly, but even with a potential 10 to 20 percent unemployment rate, there's still 120 million to 140 million jobs that will need to be staffed. People are still going to be hiring. Labor and brains are still in demand. It's simply um, uh, be that much more competitive. Uh, the biggest difference we'll see is the uh, that da- the days of writing your own resume and winging it will absolutely be a thing of the past. Uh, experts su- are, are suspect, I should say, suspect that those with professionally crafted marketing documents, resumes, cover letters, LinkedIn profiles, will get the interviews. And those who truly understand how to convey the value of their expertise and experience in person and on paper, in terms that will resonate loudly with hiring managers, will be getting the interviews and offers. Effective marketing of human capital will need to become the new normal. So you might want to spend some of your time preparing for that if you anticipate being in the job market uh, with all of that uh, coming in the future. Taking a look at the uh, latest update here in the state of uh, Oregon, one of the things that we're hearing is that restaurants may be asked to keep records of the patrons who eventually come back into their facilities, uh, the names of uh, the people eating in their restaurants, Um, in order that uh, there can be tracking done. Well, in terms of the raw numbers, uh, Oregon's death toll, 101 deaths to date, uh, 2,400 cases uh, in the state of Oregon. More than 3.8 million Americans filed for jobless benefits last week, roughly 30.3 million Americans. Oregon restaurants, as I mentioned, may be uh, asked to consider keeping the names and contact information and dates of visits of patrons as part of the state's effort to reopen parts of the economy. Uh, according to a draft version of the plan obtained by the Oregonian. And a California-based personal finance company predicts Oregon's unemployment numbers during the COVID-19 pandemic will far surpass numbers from the Great Depression between 20, or rather 2009 and 2012, a little over twice as bad if you remember those numbers. Meanwhile, Rudy Thompson grew up outside Toledo, Oregon, where U.S. soldiers logged timber for World War I. He believes they brought the Spanish flu with them. At 107 years old, he's an Oregon native who recalls how the Spanish flu hit his family. He was interviewed and on, uh, on KGW had a rather interesting story to tell. Many people have compared the coronavirus to the Spanish flu of 1918. That pandemic killed 50 million people worldwide. Rudy Thompson, at 107, was six years old when the Spanish flu hit his family home in Toledo, Oregon. His grandmother contracted influenza, developed pneumonia, and she died. He said, I really loved my grandmother. He graduated from Oregon State University, now lives in Grass Valley, California. He really missed her so much at the time and even now. Not long before his grandmother became ill, two trains rolled into town from East Coast. They were carrying soldiers and possibly the Spanish flu. The men were with the U.S. Army's Spruce Production Division, tasked with producing uh, timber used to build planes during World War I. 
They had to learn logging from scratch, he says, with a chuckle. The peaceful little valley all of a sudden became uh, teeming with life. Thompson said the soldiers would often visit his grandmother's farm, which was next door to his house. He recalled his grandmother had a player piano, which the soldiers enjoyed. They'd bring their instruments, banjos, guitars, and such. There was a big sing-along, and he really enjoyed that. Well, looking back, he believes one of those soldiers gave his grandmother the Spanish flu. Research suggests the virus originated in New York and was first detected among U.S. military personnel. Where else could you have uh, come up with this except for the soldiers, he speculates, uh, looking back. There was no social distancing back then, but there is today. Thompson is thankful for everyone observing uh, that uh, practice, including his 73-year-old son, Gary, who's been staying with him since March. At my age, I'm pretty sure it would be the end of me. Thompson credits good genes and a healthy diet, rich in fish and produce for his longevity. He eats lots of vegetables. He's one of those house people that really did eat an apple a day, says his son. He doesn't trust um, anyone else to come into the home, but whatever it takes to keep Thompson and his 170, uh, 107-year-old uh, memories alive He's going to do that during this pandemic, the second in his lifetime. Well, uh, the number of known deaths from the coronavirus in Oregon topped 100 on Wednesday. The Oregon Health Authority reported 61 new cases of the coronavirus and two deaths, bringing the total to 101. Of almost 55,000 people tested, 2,446 results were positive. All those uh, who died in the state from the coronavirus had underlying health conditions, according to the Oregon Health Authority. Almost 60% of cardiovascular disease, or rather had cardiovascular disease, according to a table published by the Oregon Health Authority late Tuesday. The data, based on case interviews and medical records of 73 people who died, marked the first time the agency specified what the underlying conditions have been. It does show the insidiousness and severity of this disease and how much it attacks the body. As a quote from Jonathan Modi, spokesperson for the Oregon Health Authority, a person who died may have had more than one underlying condition, the OHA noted. The second highest underlying medical condition after heart failure was a neurological or neurodevelopmental issue. Neurological disorders include epilepsy, Alzheimer's disease, um, sero brovascular disease, cerebrovascular disease, including stroke, multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's disease, other underlying conditions. And again, we're talking about the state of Oregon included diabetes in 33% of the cases, lung disease, 29%, kidney disease, 25%, 18% with compromised immune systems and liver disease. This is the uh, Don Nolt, who's an associate professor of pediatrics of the division of infectious disease at OHSU in Portland, said she's not surprised that disease of major organs and poor immune system are a factor in so many deaths. But again, the number one um, underlying condition in the state of Oregon, heart disease for those who lost their battle with the coronavirus. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to talk with uh, Christy Freeze in just a few moments. She's vice president for events and experience marketing with uh, Wycliffe Bible Translators. Interestingly enough, uh, they have provided a resource for families to help keep their young people in the household, the little ones and the not so little ones, uh, with activities that can take as little as 10 minutes to complete to a month. So if you're looking for creative ideas, we'll tell you more about that when she joins us in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, as uh, as many of us are sheltering in place, we might be running out of ideas to help engage young people who are sheltering in place with us, whether they're little ones or maybe teenagers or preteens. We're all looking for ways to keep them occupied, and I'm happy to announce that Wycliffe Bible Translators has a resource for you and your family. I know you're probably thinking, well, that seems a bit odd and out of uh, out of character with Wycliffe, but I've got some great information we want to pass along uh, to you. Joining us is Christy Fries. She's Vice President for Events and Experience Marketing with Wycliffe Bible Translators USA, and I'm just delighted to welcome you to our listening audience with some great ideas for families. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I know it's a tough time to keep all the families busy, and uh, it's always good for the kids to get a little bored, but we want them to have some fun activities to do as well, and we have some great activities that kids can do from around the world so they can travel around the world without leaving the house, which is a lot of fun. Oh, incredible. Now, before we start talking about some of those suggestions, for listeners who are not familiar with Wycliffe um, Bible Translators USA, tell us a little bit about uh, Wycliffe and um, how this is a part of your mission as well. So Wycliffe is committed to Bible translation. So the goal that we have is that we want everyone to have scripture in the language that speaks to their heart. So uh, the language that speaks to your heart is probably the language you think in, dream in, or pray in. And we want everybody to have God's Word in that language because it goes deep when it's in your own heart language or heart languages. And so that is our mission. And our mission with kids in these activities is to show them God's creation around the world and how creative God is in terms of all the different languages there are in the world, like there's almost, you know, 7,000 languages in the world today. And, you know, when we think about that, can you imagine not having any scripture in your language? Like I think of my knowledge base, scripture is just a key part, the stories, the Bible stories, Daniel, all those things. So we want everyone to have that. And we know that children are interested in that too. And so we want to show them God's diversity and all the you know, people he's created, the languages around the world. And we also want people to understand, you know, the children around the world and how they're like you and how they're different from you. So this is a great way to do that through activities and games and recipes and things like that. Well, and I appreciate your making that explanation because this really isn't much of a departure from what Wycliffe does in terms of making the Bible accessible to people all over the world. Well, let's talk about this yeah. resource that I think parents and uh, caregivers are going to find very helpful during this time of, of self-isolation. Well, parents can find this resource on org, and they can just hit backslash kids. Um, on the Wycliffe.org site, or they can find it under resources. But it's a lot of great resources for kids. There's international activities. Um, kids can do some of these activities by themselves, so keeps them busy <laughs> while you're trying to do something else, make yeah. dinner, those types of things. And then we also have um, activities that they can do with parents, you know, so recipes, cooking something international, you might want to help them out in the kitchen a little bit. But once you go to the site, you can find a lot of activities. A lot of our activities are for elementary school age. It's ideal. Uh, They can go on adventures with Kate, who is a missionary kid. 
So she's a Wycliffe missionary kid who gets to travel around the world because her parents are Bible translators. Um, and she gets to adve- do adventures with her pet macaw. And his name is Mac. So it's Kate and Mac around the world adventures. And we have lots of free downloadable activities. Um, an example is a decoder. So they kind of learn about Bible translation that way. So it's decoding activity. They can decode the scripture verse in a different language. And that's always a fun activity to do. I remember loving decoding activities when I was a kid too. And then we have an around the world scavenger hunt that families can do together. Um, Adults can hide 10 clues around the house that lead kids to household items such as, you know, a toothbrush or toothpaste or a Bible. And then as the kids use the clues to guess each item, they have fun learning about different countries and items that were invented and how they're used in those countries. So that's a fun activity for a family. And we also have a safari activity that you can go on with our Kate and Mac book. And so kids can learn different things using um, our translation needs and 3D activities, and they can make and cut and color 3D animals, such as a giraffe, an elephant, and a rhinoceros. Oh, these sounds like really, really fun activities uh, for families. I know. One of the the things that you also do is give parents some perspective on how long an activity is likely to occupy their youngster. Well, it depends on the age of the kids, but yeah, um, you know, it would vary. I think the elementary school, you know, the the scavenger hunt could take a little longer depending on the kids and the clues you give them. And, um, you know, the decoding activity, some kids I see finish that in like five minutes, especially if they know their scriptures really well. They get a couple words and they're like right there. But some of them, it takes a little longer. So so lots of fun activities. But there's endless activities on the site, so it could keep them busy for hours. <laughs> Which I think a lot of parents are looking for <laughs> right about this time, who have by now exhausted yeah. their resource and creativity and trying to uh, <laughs> respond to kids who say, I'm bored. <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm bored. Yeah, that favorite line. Yeah. Now, one of the things you mentioned is, um, is the opportunity for cooking. Tell us a little bit about that. So we have um, some recipes out there. So we have international recipes for kids to try. And so there's a recipe book that's a digital download. So you can try different recipes from different places. Um, And I can't remember one of them right now, but that's funny. (laughs) Um, But there are lots of really good ones. I know I tried one. We made some MOAs. And those were really good. You know, so some of them are a little trickier and they need mom and dad's help. But some of them, if your kids are, craft, you know, good in the kitchen, you could let them present you with a good dinner. Yeah, I just opened one that's uh, America's Tres Leches Cake, which is one of my favorites. Oh, yes. There's a recipe there with an you illustration a- and a fun thing for kids to download and, and make. Yes, and Trace Leche's cake is so good. And so if they've never had that, that's a really fun thing to try. You know, and maybe even if they've had it, it's a fun thing to try to make as well. So Yeah, make for yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things I appreciate about all of these resources is that it, it uh, encourages kids to look outward. I mean, we're so preoccupied with our own situation and what's happening to us. But to think about the, the wider world um, at this time, I think it can be very healthy um, and gives kids an opportunity to broaden their perspective. Definitely. One other fun thing that we have coming up is a story time. 
on May 15th. So you could mark your calendar, save the date for um, Storytime Live with Cliff Storytime at 11 p 11 a.m. Eastern. So um, different time for you guys. But you could still catch it on Facebook. And so our children's book, Kate, uh, Around the World with Kate and Mac, A Look at Languages, will be read by our author, Melissa Paredes. And they'll learn a few language groups and get to be part of it. And they'll see it from our Wycliffe Discovery Center, which is an awesome place to join us at. And you could also, um, on our Facebook page, check out a Discovery Center tour. So you're not going to travel to see our headquarters here in Orlando right now, but you could travel through Facebook Live and visit us and um, watch the tour of the Discovery Center with our tour guide. And it's just uh, 25 minutes, just under 25 minutes that it would keep the kids busy uh, from start to finish. So that's a great way for the whole family to learn about Bible translation or, you know, to make dinner while the kids are watching it. Oh, absolutely. Well, again, this is such a great resource that I think most of us are completely unaware of. It's also a great introduction to the work of Wycliffe and um, and uh, the the translation work that you do and get kids to be thinking about, again, the world uh, a bit differently than perhaps they have in the past. Now, again, the best place to do that is just the website, um, Wycliffe.org? Yes, right there at Wycliffe.org backslash kids. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for introducing this resource. Yes. I know it's going to be a blessing to lots of our families uh, who are listening and uh, trying desperately to occupy their kids' imagination with things <laughs> that are healthy and fruitful. <laughs> yes, and it's so much fun. Kids really love it. We have kids who love to play with Kate and Mac and travel around the world. So thanks so much for having me. Oh, absolutely. Just one final question. Is there a prohibition against adults maybe pursuing some of these things? You know, I'm just no, asking there for is others. not a prohibition against <laughs> adults pursuing these things. And we also have some devotionals for adults as well. Um, we do have two books out, but our latest one is A Journey with the Word, and it has devotionals in it, just one page long apiece. Uh, so it's 56 true stories that they can partake in. Uh, we have storytellers like Bible translators from Wycliffe, but also other storytellers that they may know, like Craig Rochelle and Aaron Schuess. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Christy, for telling us about this resource, and I know it's going to be a blessing to all of us. Well, great. Thank you for having us share. We're very excited about them. Well, stay safe, and I look forward to our next conversation. Yes, me too. You take care and stay safe as well. Thank you. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. When we return, we're going to talk with Robert Hutchinson. He's the author of What Really Happened. It's a series, and this is the inaugural edition, The Lincoln Assassination. If you thought you knew, you might be surprised to learn what you don't know. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Later this hour, we're going to talk with Larry Gadbaugh, Chief Executive Officer of First Image and Pregnancy Resource Centers. Their Steps for Life is coming up this year a little bit different, just like everything else. We'll tell you more about that later in this hour. Well, every one of us thinks we know what happened at the Lincoln assassination. But the question my next guest raises, do we really? Well, after 155 years, in fact, the anniversary was earlier this month, 
A multitude of unsolved mysteries and urban legends still surround the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, and many history books present these as facts. While award-winning pop history author Robert Hutchinson, he takes a new look at the case and explores what really happened at Ford's Theater on the night of April 14th, 1865, and the inaugural title of What Really Happened series, What Really Happened, The Lincoln Assassination. In those final weeks of the Civil War, Washington was boiling over with animosity and recriminations, culminating in a renowned actor assassinating the President of the United States. Well, there were rumors, as one would expect. Scandals spread. Eyewitnesses testified. The truth was hard to discern then, so how can we know what really happened 155 years later? Well, my next guest, he sifts through the mountains of primary sources. He debunks urban legends to present, well, straightforward answers to our pressing questions. Richard Hutchinson is an award-winning writer, speaker, and author of numerous books of popular history, including The Dawn of Christianity, When in Rome, and The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Bible. The general editor of the What Really Happened series, he gives talks on historical topics to groups throughout the U.S. and Europe and blogs at Robert Hutchinson. Dot com. He joins us today to talk about his latest in the What Really Happened series, the inaugural issue, The Lincoln Assassination. Robert Hutchinson, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Georgine, for having me on your show. Well, this is a provocative title because I think if you were to ask most Americans what happened, we would rattle off a series of, of facts believing that we know what happened. So what, what more could we possibly uh, learn about what happened? Uh, so this, this is designed to provoke us into thinking, do we really know what happened? What motivated you to take on this, this subject? Were you skeptical from the beginning or did you begin research that eventually led to the question being asked? Well, well, when we originally pitched the series, uh, what really happened series, the whole idea was to cut through all the golly controversy and the disputed details that surround many historical events and get to the truth of what we actually know or could reasonably prove from historical documents and evidence. And I was attracted to this story in particular because many Americans aren't aware of how similar uh, the political environment of the time was to our own day. We talk about how America is divided and Republicans are battling Democrats and so on, and everybody uh, is attacking the president of the United States and so on. It was exactly the same thing in Lincoln's day. People don't really realize how hated Abraham Lincoln was in his own time by at least half the country. And, uh, you know, there was there was fake news, there was all sorts of, uh, scurrilous things being done on both sides. Uh, the Republicans and the Democrats were at each other's throats. Nothing seemed to be able to get done. And I just thought that this was a, a good uh, story to retell because there's so many similar, similarities with our own era. Well, and it certainly is a fascinating story, just on its face, when you have the assassination of a sitting president at the most volatile time in our nation's history. There's just something fascinating about the details that we may think we understand or may not have uh, considered very deeply. Um, so I think it's just a, an interesting subject uh, regardless. Now let me ask you um, to talk a little bit about John Wilkes Booth. He was sort of the Brad Pitt of his day. He was well known as an actor. Uh, he had decided to um, partner with the Confederacy. Uh, but tell us a little bit about him and his background. Yeah, he was a strange duck. I mean, the people that knew uh, John Wilkes Booth thought he was the nicest guy they ever met, one of the most generous, kind, funny uh, people. Uh, even after 
the assassination, uh, his friends continued to sing his praises, even when it was very dangerous to do so, because he was one of the, the hated, most hated man in America. He came from a family of Union supporters, people that voted for Lincoln, uh, that were uh, strong abolitionists and opposed slavery. He was raised in Maryland, but his family spent most of their time in the North, in New York City. He came from a family of, of uh, actors and poets, and one, one of his brothers became a doctor. So he was unusual in that he was kind of going against everything his family stood for uh, by his embracing of the Confederacy and his support of slavery. So he was kind of the odd duck in the family. And he was extremely famous. He was the George Clooney or Brad Pitt of his day. <laughs> he made about half a million dollars a year from acting. He was very famous. And so for him to do this was, was just one of the most shocking things the country had ever seen. Was there a mitigating circumstance that led to his initial agreement to partner with the Confederacy in kidnapping um, Lincoln? Was there a, a, an event, a story, fake news that sort of was the, the, the thing that said, OK, I'm going to go further than just oppose this president? Yes. If there's one thing I contribute to the, to the, to the story, I think, is by emphasizing the fact that it isn't really highlighted in most Lincoln books, uh, was that uh, Booth got into a fight in New Orleans. He went down to New Orleans, which was occupied by the Union, to go to a theater down there. And he was shooting off his mouth, as he usually did, attacking Lincoln and the Union and everything. And unbeknownst to him, there was a Union soldier at the party. And the guy called him a coward to his face and said that if he had these convictions, if he had half of, if he had any manhood at all, He'd be wearing the uniform of the Confederacy and have a rifle on his shoulder. He was nothing but a low-down coward. And they almost got into a gunfight and killed each other. And that stuck in Booth's craw uh, for months. He realized that he, he was just a talker, and he hadn't done anything to, 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 to fulfill those convictions. And, and so he decided he had to do something big for the Confederacy. And his first plan was to kidnap Lincoln and to hold him hostage to free Confederate prisoners uh, that were held in Union prisons. And as the war wore on, that became increasingly uh, a moot point because the Confederacy was, was pretty much losing the war. And so he decided that he had to do something even bigger and basically a, a coup that would eliminate the leadership of the, of the entire Union government in one fell swoop by assassinating not just Lincoln, but also the vice president and the secretary of state, and then perhaps even uh, Ulysses S. Grant, the head of the military. Mm. Now, was this a major departure from what was originally thought to be a plausible plan by the Confederacy? Did they have a hand in the assassination plot? That's a very good question. In fact, that's a million-dollar question. There's evidence yeah. on both, in both directions. Booth was certainly aided by some Confederate couriers and sympathizers like John Surratt Jr. and Thomas Harbin. Uh, he met with Confederate agents during a trip to Montreal, and they gave him contact in Maryland. But on the other hand, uh, most people who have studied the assassination and in particular his kidnapping plat, plot uh, say that Booth had no idea what he was doing. He was an amateur. He was an actor playing uh, at the military on the stage. He had no military training almost at all. And he was basically a bungler. And all of the various attempts to kidnap uh, Lincoln, I mean, he would show up, he'd get his crew ready to kidnap Lincoln, only to find out that Lincoln was uh, 50 miles away giving a speech. So most mainstream historians who study this 
think that while the Confederacy may have known that Booth had some kind of crazy idea or crazy plans, they didn't actively aid him in, in the, either the kidnapping and certainly not the assassination. You mentioned a couple of names, uh, John Wilkes Booth's uh, accomplices. Who were some of his Confederates in either the uh, kidnapping but certainly the assassination plan? Well, he had a couple dozen Confederate sympathizers who helped him in his uh, kidnapping plot where he was thinking about that. But in the end, about a month before the assassination, he had a big meeting of all of his crew at a restaurant, and he began to hint that there might be an easier way to achieve their goals. And the moment most of his his accomplices began to suspect that he had something more sinister on his mind, like murder, they all said they wanted out. They they all had families and a future, and they wanted nothing to do with murder. And they all told him that to his face. And so he backed off. And in the end, he was left with only three impoverished uh, followers who basically did what he said because he paid them. Uh, One was a guy named David Harold, who was a pharmacist assistant. Another guy was a former Confederate guerrilla leader named Lewis Powell. And the third was a German immigrant named George Atzerat. And they, they were the only three that were actually executed by the federal government for their role in the assassination, along with a woman, Mary Surratt, uh, it was a very controversial uh, decision, her, her being included in that. But uh, in the end, the, the Union government was actually fairly restrained in that they only really meted out harsh justice to the people that were with Booth at the very end. We're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we're talking about a fascinating book, The Lincoln Assassination, What Really Happened. It's the first in a series of books uh, in the same vein. Interestingly, it tells us uh, what, uh, what we know as well as what we don't know, some things that are still a mystery. We'll continue our conversation with its author, Robert Hutchinson, in just a few moments. So do stay with us. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with the author of What Really Happened? The Lincoln Assassination, written by my guest, Robert Hutchinson. This is a first in a series of books uh, with the same question being posed to various historic events. And it's really fascinating to learn about the the key players, the backgrounds, the histories, and some of the events that took place leading up to and following the assassination of President Abraham Lincoln. Now, is it true that Abraham Lincoln, as far as we know, that he had a premonition uh, that his life was going to uh, to end, a premonition of his own death? And was that just that general sense that there is such tremendous hostility in the country that it's likely that I uh, will either not survive it or that someone would take my life? Or how how do you explain if, in fact, there was this premonition? Well, that, that's one of the many stories that I kind of seek to debunk. I mean, the story definitely mm-hmm. grew in the telling uh, between what people actually, who, the actual eyewitnesses said happened versus things that were told 20, 30, or 40 years later after the events. And that is one of the sort of the myths that's grown up, and it's, it's almost in every book on Lincoln, is that Lincoln woke up in the middle of the night, and he went downstairs in the White House, and he saw his own, he saw himself lying in state in a casket. And that's when he knew that he was going to be assassinated. Uh, the problem is only one man, a self-appointed bodyguard, U.S. Marshal, in his memoirs written 40 years later, reported 
they, uh, that Lincoln had told him that. Everyone else, his personal secretaries, his wife, people who work with him every day, the members of the cabinet, nobody reported Lincoln ever telling them about his dreams. And Lincoln talked about his dreams a lot. He, he listened to his dreams. He thought they were important, and no one reported that. However, it was true that everybody was worried about assassination. There was talk that there might be an assassination plot in the air. He had 80 letters in his desk with threats to kill him that he looked at every day, that he saw on his desk every day. So uh, Lincoln certainly knew that an assassination was a, was a possibility. Uh, but as far as the actual... Well, let's talk about the that events had, that took place um, at Ford's Theater. How on earth did John Wilkes Booth manage to gain access to the booth where the sitting president of the United States, who was under tremendous pressure uh, with uh, fears surrounding the possibility of an assassination attempt, how did he gain access uh, to that location in order to kill the president? Well, as you said, first of all, it was a different era. Anybody could actually visit Lincoln uh, on Friday afternoons if they had a, a, a complaint or something that they wanted to tell him. Uh, he had an open office on at least one day a week where ordinary people could see him. So it was a different era, although someone did take a pot shot at him the year before, and so the government insisted that he have a military escort when he was being going around town in his carriage. Uh, however, uh, when he went to the theater, he thought that was too heavy-handed, so he uh, insisted that he only have a police bodyguard. And there was a police bodyguard who accompanied he and his wife to the theater, but his name was John Parker. He was a notorious drunk, and he was seen laughing next door at the saloon, next door to the theater. But there was a guy who was outside the door when Booth appeared. And Booth was, as like the Brad Pitt of his day, he was famous. So he had the run of the theater. He went to the theater. He was friends with the owners. He could come in whenever he wanted. Nobody questioned that. But when he approached the presidential box, he was stopped by this uh, personal assistant to the president, a guy named Charles Forbes. And uh, Booth simply reached into his pocket and pulled out a calling card and gave it to uh, Forbes and said, uh, I need to speak with the president. And Forbes assumed that he had an appointment and just said, okay. <laughs> and mm. there were uh, two, two other messengers that just come the previous hour with messages for Lincoln. So it wasn't that unusual. And, and that's basically how he gained access to the uh, presidential box. Wow. How did, as you put it in the chapter, preparing for the performance of a lifetime, how did John Wilkes Booth prepare for his encounter with the president? Uh, well, he, he prepared by getting ready to make his escape. He, had, um, he practiced his escape on his horse in the back of the theater. He knew exactly where he was going to go. Uh, and then he knew that he, only, he, he brought as his, his weapon a single-shot Derringer, and he knew that uh, it might misfire, so he brought a knife with him as well as a backup weapon. And his plan was to do exactly what he did, which was to shoot Lincoln uh, in the head with the Derringer. Uh, he didn't expect uh, the resistance that he got from uh, a major, an uh, Army major who was in the box with him, and that slowed him down a bit. But he knew exactly what he was going to do. He had worked it out. He would practiced his escape um, uh, for weeks, especially when they thought it was going to be a kidnapping. So he was very prepared, and was, that's how he was able to pull it off and get away so easily. Now, how, how is it possible that this actor who is very famous, well-known, certainly his face is recognized, that he not only manages to escape Ford's theater, but he manages to evade authorities for nearly two weeks? Yes, even though he couldn't even walk. 
that's the most, it's one of the most interesting yeah. parts of the yeah. story because he, he did get away and got to the famous Dr. Mudd's house that night and he set his broken leg because he did break his leg when he jumped down on the stage. They set his, he set his leg, but badly. And they, they sent him to a location near Dr. Mudd's house and he was visited by a Confederate smuggler named Thomas Jones. And the truth about how Booth was able to vanish into thin air only became known 20 years later when um, Thomas Jones finally told his story to newspaper reporters. And what happened was Jones met with Booth and David Harold, and he said, look, the Union is, every, every soldier in the Union Army is now going door to door, searching every barn and cow path within 100 miles of Washington. You have no chance of getting away unless you do exactly what I tell you. And he told them what he had to do was lie down on the cold, wet ground in a thicket of trees, of pine trees, and not make a peep for two weeks or for, or for at least a week. And he promised that he would bring him food and, Booth said, and newspapers. Booth wanted to have newspapers because he wanted to read his reviews. He thought he was going to be mm, uh, celebrated as, a, as, a, as the liberator of America from the tyrant Lincoln. So that's exactly what he did. He lay down on the cold ground. There was no fire. He was miserable. He was cold. And five days later, the, the uh, Union soldiers got a report of a sighting of Booth in Virginia. And just as it was false, it was a false report. And just as uh, Thomas Jones predicted, the entire military got up and left and went to Virginia to go search for a mayor. And that's when uh, Jones was able to put Booth in a rowboat and uh, let him cross the Potomac. But by sheer accident, Booth ended up going precisely where the false report had put him or had said he, <laughs> where he was. So he ended up going right where the military had gone, and that's ultimately why they caught him. It was yeah. a sheer accident. Yeah. What was most surprising to you about the, the story of these two men whose encounter resulted in the death of a president? What really, what really surprised me is how much of the people that supported the South and the Confederacy and people that supported the Union worked side by side and with each other. Uh, I didn't quite realize that. These were literal mm -hmm. enemies. There were, people were being killed. 600,000 Americans died in the Civil War. And yet these people, especially in places like Washington, D.C., were forced to live together and work together and kind of bite their tongues. Otherwise, there would be constant fights and constant you know, killings and so on. And it's very much like today where people have very diametrical opposed political viewpoints, and yet, you know, they work in the same offices and so on, and they have to get along. Same thing with Booth and his family. Booth's entire family supported the Union. Only he did not, and yet he was his family. He had to get along with them. So that's what surprised me. I didn't, I didn't expect that. You write that Abraham Lincoln's final day on earth was one of the happiest of his life. Explain what you mean by that. It, he, it was absolutely probably the happiest day of his life since the, uh, since the Civil War began. Abraham Lincoln died a happy man. He believed that he was put on this earth by God to save the United States and to save self-government, government of the people, for the people, and by the people. And on April 14, 1865, one week after the last major battle of the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln knew that he had accomplished what he had set out to do. And the, the United States would be saved, would be preserved. And he was looking forward to life after the presidency. He told his wife he, maybe they could move to California for a time. 
is looking forward to practicing law. He even had a secret desire to go to Palestine and see Jerusalem. He was beginning to dream again, and they went to, he and his wife went driving out to the uh, naval yard. They had a great time. And then they went to the theater with friends, and everybody talked about how Lincoln seemed transformed. He combed his hair. He looked better than he had in months. He was happy again. They hadn't seen him like this in years. And so as tragic as it is, Abraham Lincoln died a happy man uh, having done what he believed he was set on this earth to do. And that's really the tragedy of this whole tale. Yeah, he had fulfilled his purpose. Well, this is a great read. I love the illustrations. I love the backstories. I love the details that are given on the various characters, some of whom I wasn't even aware were part of this story. The book is What Really Happened? The Lincoln Assassination, Robert Hutchinson, my guest. A great read, especially if you find yourself in need of some stimulating uh, reading. The book is published by Regnery History, and I thank you so much for the book and for taking the time to talk with us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Georgine. Thank you. Uh, again, The Lincoln Assassination, What Really Happened. Great book. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk with Larry Gadbaugh. He's Chief Executive Officer for First Image and Pregnancy Resource Centers. Now, typically in mid to late May, we have Steps for Life. It's one of the major fundraising events for the organization. We're going to talk about the, well, the new normal for uh, this uh, Steps for Life event when he joins us in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, there are certain people when I receive an email from them, I'm always prepared to drop everything and see what they have to say. That Larry Gadball would fit into that category. I love this guy. I love his heart for the Lord. I love his heart for ministry. Uh, and I love to see what he has to write. In fact, I, I think I quoted him. It's been several weeks ago now when he made the point that we are all monk now, <laughs> that TV character. Well, I received an email from him yesterday uh, pointing out that the annual event Steps for Life is going to be conducted, but in a little bit different way. And I wanted to make sure that you knew about that. So I invited Larry to join me to talk about Steps for Life 2020 uh, that's taking place on May the 30th. And you might want to mark that date. Um, in a little bit of a different way. So, Larry Gadbaugh, welcome. Well, it's always great to be with you, even virtually uh, and remotely, <laughs> Georgine. <laughs> and, oh, by yeah. the way, before any further, it's 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 May 23rd, not May 30th. Oh, what did I, I? I'm sorry. I'm looking right at May 23rd, and I must have misspoken. So I appreciate the <laughs> clarification. May 23rd. I'll get that right. Well, we're, well um, We've been staring at so many screens lately, it's, you know, I'm sure it's forgivable. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what day or month it is, but I can get May 23rd right. Now, yeah, I was thinking about right. this just the other day about Steps for Life and whether or not that event was going to be canceled, as a lot of events have been canceled. But you have come up with a creative way to move forward on May the 23rd. So tell us about Steps for Life, which will be your 19th uh, for, with First Image. Yes. Well, it's always a great, fun event. And, uh, you know, we get, uh, usually uh, hundreds of people gather. They they uh, raise uh, sponsors to sponsor them to do the two-mile walk. And then the last couple of years, we've held it at Blue Lake Park uh, and done a 5K run. And it's just a great family event. Well, now we'll all be running with uh, social distancing <laughs> or walking with social distancing. <laughs> And uh, and we'll do, but we will do a, a, a webcast on 
May 23rd uh, at 10 o'clock online. And uh, we'll also have uh, Randy Alcorn joining us for that. We'll all be interviewing him uh, remotely as well. Because Randy has been, uh, as you well know, uh, Georgine, Randy has been such an important voice in so many aspects of the yes. Christian life, in, in the area of stewardship and and uh, other uh, practical theology and pastoral things, but especially in the area of the sanctity of life. And uh, and so Randy's going to come on uh, with us uh, as a, with a special appearance uh, for that, as well as some other uh, things that we'll be broadcasting on that day. Now, for folks who have participated in Steps for Life in the past, there are different ways that you can participate this year around. I know I've sponsored you before in the past. I've uh, been to the event in other capacities. What can people do this time around? Because this is an important event for the ongoing work of um, First Image and Pregnancy Resource Centers in the Portland metro area. Yeah, it's one of our two uh, biggest uh, events of the year to connect with and to partner with those that uh, have a heart for the ministry that we have of serving uh, women facing unsupported pregnancy and their preborn babies, show them the compassion of Christ and give them the information they need to make life-affirming uh, decisions about their pregnancy and, and supply ultrasounds and uh, give baby clothes and maternity clothes and and just show them the love of Christ and in our centers. Um, and we're still doing that uh, on a daily basis. We've continued to be accessible. Uh, we've had to, um, we've had to, of course, put all of the uh, screening pro- uh, processes in place uh, with masks, you know, and, and mm-hmm. surgical masks and, and meeting them at the door, take their temperature and, and everything else, just like all the other medical uh, facilities have to do, but uh, we are we are continuing to see women in our centers, and uh, we're just so thankful that God has enabled us to do that. So yes. an event like Steps for Life um, raises the funds and uh, connects with people uh, and their prayers so that we can continue to do that together with them in partnership with them. And so... Um, People can be involved by going to our website, first-image.org, and there will be a link there to Steps for Life, and uh, someone can uh, can register. We encourage people to register, and they can give the, uh, the, to support themselves. They can give, give to support other people who, uh, who are walking that day. I'll be walking that day on my usual daily route anyway, which is about two miles, and I do my prayer walk every morning after I read scriptures and so forth. And, and uh, so I'll be doing that. And uh, hopefully hundreds of others will be doing that too. I mean, you walk anytime, of course, but uh, we're still targeting a specific date, uh, May 23rd, to kind of bring us together for that. So yeah, you, can, you can register yourself. Uh, you can uh, join a team or make up a team of those who are fundraising together. And as we have in the past, we had already ordered all the t-shirts and all those other good things, you know, to uh, celebrate together. And those will continue to be, those are still available uh, for those who raise a certain amount as an incentive. And uh, um, so all of that, all of that is explained on the website. Uh, Or you can sponsor someone like me uh, and, and others 
to uh, our raising funds to go towards the ministry. And again, that's first-image.org, first-image.org. And it is a very detailed uh, bit of information there for people who want to either sponsor you or someone else participate. And, you know, in years past, there have been opportunities for rewards and prizes. How about this year? Well, yes, there, you know, in terms of um, those who raise a certain amount, and I don't remember right this moment, you know, uh, you'll get a T-shirt or a baseball hat or, you know, with uh, logos on it and so forth. And there are some other things that are on the merchandise uh, page uh, that you can also raise enough money to receive. Kind of an incentive there. Yes. Again, yeah. the and website it's a good first. Way, what's that? Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I missed that. I was just going to say first-image.org is the place to get all yes. of that uh, that information. Now, I'm I'm happy to hear that the pregnancy resource centers are still able to function because I wondered how are women who are finding themselves right in the middle of this pandemic that they might be pregnant, that they have a an unplanned or unsupported pregnancy, but you all are still able to extend the love of Christ and the practical help they need right through all of this. We are, and that's because of the amazing uh, courage and compassion of our staff. Yes. Uh, most of our volunteers are not able to come into the centers to, to help out during this season, uh, but all of our staff are doing that, our nurses, our center directors, our assistants, and uh, they're all uh, geared up, uh, screened <laughs> themselves, and uh, through all the protocols, and meeting with these women. And what we're finding is that, you know, facing an unsupported pregnancy, there's already a level of anxiety and confusion yes. and, and ambivalence uh, that many women face. And that is only heightened during all the uncertainty and confusion of the pandemic. And so our, uh, our staff, just uh, listening to them share about what their experience has been the last couple months, is uh, they say it's hard. It's been very hard um, for them to do that, but it is the love of Christ uh, mm. and their dedication to love our neighbors in this way that has uh, carried them through. Yeah. So I'd encourage our listeners to add to your prayer list the staff for the Pregnancy Resource Centers who are continuing to serve as they always have, uh, but under very different circumstances. So I'm so grateful for them. Once again, want to remind you that Steps for Life is moving forward a little bit different this year. Uh, on May 23rd, there's uh, Larry Gadbaugh is going to be walking outside on his daily route. Uh, you can sponsor him. You can do a walk on your own and find sponsors uh, for you. And just keep in mind that the work that the Pregnancy Resource Centers do in First Image, that continues. And this is one of the major events that helps to underwrite uh, the work that they do, extending the love of Christ and uh, practical help uh, to women and girls in our community. Well, Larry, I, um, I'll, I'll, I'll sponsor you. I need to go online and do that. But I appreciate that you've made it possible for this event to move forward and that the work will continue. Georgine, it's always such a delight to partner with you and uh, in what you do uh, for all of us in our community. God bless you. God bless you as well. Thanks, Larry. Thank you, Georgine. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we will wrap things up. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. <laughs> 
is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. And before I mention uh, a couple of things, I want to remind you that if you're looking for a great opportunity to spend some time thinking deeply about the world beyond what's going on today with COVID-19, Salem Media Group, as you know, is now in the movie business, at least for the time being, by streaming No Safe Spaces, the documentary about free speech, uh, featuring uh, comedian Adam Carolla and nationally syndicated radio host Dennis Prager. It's one of 2019's top-earning political documentaries, but you probably didn't have an opportunity to see it, and many of the streaming services have said, nah, we don't like the political point of view. We're not going to make it available. Salem stepped up, and now you can see it. Um, so the message of the film is how free speech and tolerance is being blocked by intolerant forces who say they believe in free speech until and unless um, someone disagrees with them. I want to encourage you to check it out. No Safe Spaces is now available to watch for a limited time only at nosafespaces.com for $19.95. But for KPDQ listeners, of which you are one, you can use the discount code SAVE25 for a 25% discount. You get the math. Nosafespaces.com. Save 25 for the 25% off discount for KPDQ listeners. I would encourage you to check that out. I'm always encouraged as I'm looking for stories that tell us a little bit about how those who are on the front line are finding encouragement. And Christianity Today focused on some doctors and scientists who are applying their faith on the front lines of this COVID-19 pandemic. Many of these first uh, responders and frontline workers are Christians. In the U.S., this is particularly true of those in the medical field. Sociologist Elaine Howard Eklund and Christopher uh, Schief reported in a 2017 book that when you look at those working at scientific jobs in the United States, such as doctors or nurses and others, 65% identify as Christians, 24% as evangelicals. And while the percentage of Christian scientists at elite research institutions is smaller, uh, they are an active bunch, and many apply their research out of a sense of service. So when we're thinking about praying for and encouraging those who are on the front lines of activity, we're talking about and to a lot of people, men and women who are men and women of faith, which gives them a leg up in coping with some of the tremendous pressure that they are currently under. But it also tells us there's a percentage of those who are uh, working out of altruism and are, are making a sacrifice for the sake of others for whom we need to pray and offer a special encouragement because they don't have the indwelling Holy Spirit to help carry them through uh, these uh, circumstances. Frances Collins was one of the uh, professionals. She is a physician and geneticist uh, who works in uh, Washington, D.C. as director of the U.S. National Institutes of Health. Uh, she oversees um, biomedical research here in the United States, which is now aiming to develop treatments and a vaccine to control the coronavirus. Uh, the prayer that Francis is making, Collins uh, views uh, her calling as a public servant to be a Christian one, uh, where she can wield the tools of science to alleviate suffering. I pray every morning that I will find a path forward to do that. Uh, that with God's help. I'm fond of Joshua and the verse in the first chapter, be strong and courageous. I need that. Sometimes I get discouraged and down. Uh, she says, Collins described the grief uh, she's been feeling, saying, I'm trying to figure out how uh, uh, to turn that uh, into something, increasing self-knowledge as well as actions. Praying for health workers who are afraid to go home, for researchers who are working night and day to come up with a solution. Uh, just one example of the frontline healthcare workers. Another is um, Emmanuel Nigre, who's a physician, um, works at Reggio Emilia, a city in uh, northern Italy, a director of semi-intensive care 
unit at a local hospital uh, focused on uh, caring for COVID-19 patients in non-invasive uh, ventilation situations, how he's caring for his faith because of all the protective gear worn by medical professionals. He says patients can't necessarily hear him speak, but they don't have to in order to experience the gospel. It's not a time to witness by word, he said. People around me will observe my behavior. He shared a letter from one of his hospital patients, um, first patients. I personally felt a miracle in the sense that the Lord put me in the hands of these professionals who can do their job well and which in the end allowed me to embrace my loved ones. I will never forget those sweet eyes hidden behind, <clears throat> excuse me, those plastic uh, barriers. When I came, uh, when I can get uh, out of the house again, I will meet many people, maybe even some uh, who saved my life. But unfortunately, I will never be able to recognize these people. I will not know who they are. But, by, um, but my thoughts will go uh, to them forever. To them, I will owe the most precious good, life, and all of them, and to all of them, I say, thank you. Jesus had sweet eyes, Matthew 9, 37. And this doctor, who is treating those patients, says this, it's almost impossible to speak to my patients now, but they need our sweet eyes. We need to pray to show empathy. Uh, I, I don't know, it's just in, encouraging to me to hear the stories of those who are serving as medical professionals, many of whom, in fact, I would go so far to say in the United States, most of whom are followers of Jesus. So keep that in mind um, as you are encouraging them in various ways and praying for them and their colleagues. Tomorrow, we're going to take a look at the uh, lighter side of the news. So I hope you will join us to do just that. We'll also share our interview of the week that will be full of uh, ideas for you and your family during this uh, lockdown and things you can do to enjoy one another and maybe even convey an important lesson or two along the way. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering, and Dan Rice for the use of his office. Thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.